Turn with me back to Acts chapter 25 in your Bible. Just to, again, reorient us to where we are in the story of Acts, the book begins with Christ ascending to heaven. The disciples are then given the Spirit at Pentecost, and the gospel begins to grow dramatically, and it spreads. And finally, one of the chief opponents of Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, is radically converted, and the second half of the book is following him around as he plants churches, really around the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean Sea. Paul is finally arrested for false charges. He starts in Jerusalem, accused of things. He's almost killed by a group of people, and so he has rushed out of there to Caesarea, which is near the Mediterranean coast. It was also the Roman capital of the region where the Roman governor lived during most of the year. And Paul spends two years uh, being kept for real no legitimate reason in the prison in Caesarea, and that is by the governor. Remember, the governor used to be um, Pontius Pilate back, you know, 25-plus years ago. Now it's a guy named Felix, and after two years, Felix is taken away, and he is replaced by a guy named Festus, Portius Festus, and similar problems begin occurring with this new governor. Now, before I get into the passage, if you look at Acts chapter 25 in your Bible, the first 12 verses are probably going to be segmented uh, apart from the rest of the verses in the chapter, or there's probably a, v- a division somewhere around there. The first 12 verses of the chapter are the Holy Spirit's inspired account of what happens in this particular scene that we're going to be looking at today. So this is the, the Holy Spirit's inspired account. Now, it's all, it's all inspired, but you'll see what I mean in a second. Verses 13 to the end of the chapter is largely the retelling of the same event from the perspective of the governor, this guy named Festus. Okay, now here's why I'm telling you that. First of all, it explains why the same events happen twice. Okay, because you read it, you're like, okay, we just, I thought that just happened. It's being recounted by the governor, Festus. An interesting thing, and this is something to hold on to uh, whenever you read any parts of Scripture. If you ever see in the Bible, this is somewhat new to me in, in terms of this being an emphasis, when you're reading any part of the Bible and you see an account of an event inspired by the Spirit that's narrated, the narrator's inspired. You're getting God's perspective on the event, what we need to know, and then you have that same moment or event retold from a flawed character. Notice that there will almost always be similarities and differences, and the differences are oftentimes the sin of the character recounting the story to make themselves look better or to minimize their flaws, things like that. So you're you're actually going to see that uh, in today's passage. It's subtle at first, but as as you look at it, you will begin to notice that. Let me give you real briefly, I've titled the sermon, same almost as last week, Paul, now before Governor Festus. So, Paul before Governor Festus. I have three points, and because of how the text is structured, I'm going to actually move back and forth between two of the points as I go. I hope that doesn't confuse you. But the three points that we'll be alternating between, number one, God's providence, which is a common theme, especially in this part of Acts, God's providence. Number two, Paul's innocence. And number three, the world's corruption. God's providence, Paul's innocence, and the world's corruption. I hope this doesn't depress you, but we're going to spend most of our time on that last point, the world's corruption. And what I really mean is two different forms of that in this passage. There is both religious corruption and there is political corruption. And you're actually seeing uh, worldliness in both the religious sphere and in the political sphere. And thankfully for us today, there no longer is worldliness and corruption 
in either the religious sphere or the political sphere. Keep going. I think that actually comes at the end of the book. I think that's at the very end of the last page of the book is when that comes true, when Jesus is, is king and everyone sees it. <clears throat> so God's providence, Paul's innocence, and the world's corruption. And I'm going to begin. I'm just going to read the first few verses, uh, again, starting with the last verse of chapter 24. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul… Have you seen the word favor twice already? Asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now, you may read this again, and you, you say, I don't, I don't see God being really talked about in this passage. What, what do you mean God's providence is visible at the beginning of this passage? Well, similar to these other parts in Acts, and as I mentioned, the book of Esther where God is not named, but it is so obvious that He's orchestrating every one of these seeming coincidences to happen the way that they do. Think about this. You remember those 40 hungry, thirsty guys from a couple weeks ago? Remember those guys, they made a covenant with each other that we're, we're not going to eat food or drink anything until we've killed Paul? And remember, they got really hungry and thirsty very quickly. Well, apparently either them or some of their friends are back because they're, they're making another uh, a little ambush attempt. They want to get Paul moved from Caesarea, 65 miles back to Jerusalem. And on the way, as they approach the city of Jerusalem, something similar is going to happen. They're going to ambush this. They're going to take Paul when he's vulnerable, not in a prison cell, and they're going to attempt to kill him. Now listen, the new governor might have reason to give in to this request because it would put them on his good side, right? Now just think for a second. If you're governor, if you're Roman governor, this is what you often think about. You th what if I was Roman governor of Judea during this time period? Well, you get your chance to think about that right now. If you were Ro Roman governor of Judea at this time period, your main goal, politically speaking, I'm not saying morally wise, but politically, your number one goal is to get a good report back to Caesar, Okay, Nero. You're, you want to get a good report with Nero. If he likes you, everything's good. If he hears bad things about what you're doing and what's happening in your province, you could be in big trouble. You could lose your career. You could also lose your life in worst case scenario. So your number one goal is to keep the Roman peace, which means no upsets, no riots, n nothing like that going on. So you will stop at anything to keep the peace. You will even do what is unjust to keep the peace, right? That's, that's the way he's thinking. And so there's pressure here for him to do what they want, to, get, to do a favor for the Jewish leaders and get Paul to come from Caesarea to Jerusalem because they want that so they can kill Paul. The, the governor doesn't know that. Festus doesn't know, uh, doesn't know that. Excuse me. Um, yeah, Festus doesn't know that. So, so he, he, he wants to bring Paul, but he chooses not to. He says, no, if you want to stand before Paul and we'll have a fair trial, you're going to have to travel with me the 60 plus miles to Caesarea and we're going to do this the right way there in Caesarea. Now, we don't know exactly why Festus made this particular decision, but I, do you see the providence of God involved in that moment? Yes. Uh, there's a wonderful proverb. You don't have to turn there. Uh, it's worth memorizing. I mean, a lot, you know, pretty much all the Proverbs are probably worth trying to memorize, but Proverbs 21.1 says this. You've all heard this verse probably. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
That is a wonderful promise. It's not talking about godly kings only here. It's not just talking about some wonderful godly king that God is directing his heart. No, the kings of the earth. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it, the king's heart, wherever he wills. And you see this, just picking some, I kind of was, was searching around to find some examples. In, in Ezra chapter 6, you may not remember this passage as well, but in Ezra 6, here's what it says. Verse 22, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Why were they celebrating? They'd just come back from exile. Why were they celebrating? For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. So the king of Assyria blessed them and let them go back to rebuild the city, and he did it happily, joyfully. Why did the king of Assyria let Israel, with Ezra and Nehemiah, go back and begin rebuilding? Why? Because the Lord sovereignly turned that pagan king's heart to do what needed to be done for the people. So listen again. The Lord, the Lord made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, that's a pagan king, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The very next chapter. Ezra 7, 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, this is a great comfort because we know that there is injustice all around us. We know that this world before Christ comes back will never be exactly the way it should be. And we as Christians at times, at least some of us, have and will be treated unjustly. And when we do all that we can within our rights to, to, to do what we can to protect our reputation, there's nothing wrong with that. Remember, Paul claims his Roman citizenship. He appeals to Caesar. He's not afraid to do things that, that try, try to bring justice. But at the end of the day, we know that after we've done what we can in our human effort, and after we have prayed to the Lord, we have to trust that even unjust and wicked rulers like Governor Felix and Governor Festus and later King Agrippa and even Nero himself who was ultimately corrupt, no matter who they are, we have to trust that the, king, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Ultimately, we cannot escape, like, like Jerry says, we cannot escape the beauty of Romans 8.28 that God is weaving and orchestrating all things together for our good to make us more like Christ, which means the good and the bad. It's like a, a think, think of a quilt that has many different colored fabrics on it, right? Now, there's a couple ways to think about this illustration. Number one is, if you ever look at the back of some of this work, it looks like a complete mess. You ever seen this? You flip it over, and you're like, how could it, this, this is a mess. I mean, there's, there's stuff going everywhere. I can't see anything. If all you saw was the back, and you're looking at it, you're like, I, I don't get this. This is not looking beautiful at all. This looks absolutely... Uh, not nice to look at. If you flip this thing over, suddenly you see the beauty of what the artist was doing. Similarly with the Lord, the dark and bright fabrics, all the different colors, all the different things, some of them good, some of them evil in and of themselves considered, God weaves them together so that even the pagan king of Assyria does something that for the people of God is for great good. And we have to trust that. So Paul, his life is saved because the Lord was providentially directing the decision made by this pagan governor Governor, uh, Governor Festus. M more could be said here, but I will, I will continue on to really the second point. Look with me at verse 6 and following. After he stayed among them, so this is the governor in Jerusalem, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. 
Paul argued in his defense neither against the law, number one, of the Jews, nor number two, against the temple, nor number three, against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Now, let me just pause here. You'll notice this is a recurring theme, is it not, in the book of Acts? Not just Paul's innocence, but the innocence of Christians who are honoring the Lord when they stand before uh, political figures. And this starts back with Jesus. This is a theme in Luke, right? Think about this. Pontius Pilate declares, I find no fault with this man. There's nothing wrong with him. But under political pressure, he caves and hands Jesus over to be crucified. Now, let me ask you, in that moment, nothing was happening in Pontius Pilate's heart except sin, right? I don't want a bad word to get back to Nero about me because a revolt starts because the Jewish leaders are really mad at me for letting this guy go that they just can't stand, even though he seems like a decent guy, this Jesus figure. So I'm going to let this innocent guy, who I know is innocent, be brutally killed so that I can protect my political reputation. That's exactly what happened, right? And when Pilate looks at Jesus, he says, you, uh, he says to Jesus, how can you not answer me? I have authority over you. Don't you know I have authority over you to kill you or to let you go? And Jesus says, well, actually, you would have no authority over me except the authority that was given from God. And so, Jesus knows that God is in control even at this moment, and Pontius Pilate, acting out of the sinful corruption of his heart, his own reputation becomes more important than justice. He lets an innocent man be brutally killed and crucified, and was God still doing his will? His secret sovereign will. Was it still at work in that moment? Yes, it was. We can trust that God is ultimately in control. And it's in Luke's gospel, by the way, Luke Acts. Remember, same author, two parts of the same big book, two books that go together. Luke, at the end, he includes a statement that I don't think the other gospels include at all. When the centurion sees Jesus die, Matthew and Mark include that wonderful statement, truly this was the Son of God. That wasn't all he said. The centurion said several things. The, remember, they, they select which lines fit with their themes in the gospel. So Matthew and Mark pick that line. Luke picks a line no one else picks. The centurion looks at Jesus die and says, truly this man was innocent. Now that may not seem like a big deal to us, but you can tell Luke was hammering this theme. It runs through his gospel and it runs through the book of Acts. Christians should be known for being truly morally blameless. Now we are not sinless, but we should ultimately be honoring the Lord with our life and it should not be because of breaking moral laws that we are going to be on trial uh, for our life. And Paul says, listen, if if I have committed a crime worthy of death, I am not seeking to escape that. But Paul is trusting in God in this moment. And that is one of the major themes. Let me just add one other comment. It is, it is likely when Luke wrote Luke and Acts, when, when that is being first copied and sent around to churches, I, I don't have a question that people were often wondering because Christians were often known, Paul especially and Jesus, for having been condemned by high-level Roman authorities. And so the question that was lingering was, if your leader was in prison and killed by the government, how do I know that We're dealing with someone who's trustworthy. And so one of the major assaults that could have come against Christianity in those early decades was, we think your founders were corrupt. That's why they received death penalties. They were deeply corrupt individuals. So Luke gives a detailed account based on eyewitness testimony and says, listen, these people were actually experiencing injustice for crimes they did not commit. They were not experiencing justice for crimes that they did commit. Now we're moving really into more the world's corruption, both religious and political, Look with me here at verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? 
But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Now, if, if you'll just notice, flip, flip with me to the end of chapter 26, the next chapter. Agrippa, who's one of the Herods, he's, I think he's the great-grandson or so of, of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa II is this king here. He hears the whole story about Paul, and this is his conclusion at the end of the story. Look at verse 30. He's just heard Paul's whole story, King Agrippa. The king rose, that's Agrippa, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if Paul would have just, you know, not appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. That's what Agrippa thinks. Is that actually true? No. Paul, this is what would have happened. Had Paul not pulled the, uh, the, the, his trump card out of his sleeve, if he hadn't pulled the card out and said, hey, I'm, I want to go appeal to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, had he not done that, he would have been sent to Jerusalem. And guess what would have happened? They would have attacked him somewhere on the way, and Paul would have been murdered. He would have been killed. So Paul knows because he already had an assassination attempt two years ago. He knows that they hate him. He knows they're going to stop at nothing to destroy him. Paul knows that the risks of going to Jerusalem are higher than the risks of even standing before Nero. And so Paul says, okay, I'm going to pull out my last effort here. I appeal to Caesar. He pulls out the Roman citizenship card. I appeal to Caesar. Take me to the Supreme Court. Get me out of here for my own protection. And Paul uh, receives that. He, he is going to be sent to Caesar. And I think Paul realizes, so this is the way the promise of Jesus is going to be fulfilled that I'm going to preach the gospel in Rome. Rome is going to take me there. They're going to ship me there on a giant boat, and Rome is actually going to take me there. I may be in chains, but Rome, the government themselves, unbeknownst to them, are taking, it's going to take me to Rome, and I'm going to get to preach the gospel, turns out, for two full years with much freedom and house arrest while he's sitting under Caesar's nose in Rome awaiting, uh, for, his, uh, awaiting for his trial. You also see the providence of God in that as well as Paul uh, appeals to Caesar. I'm going to continue, but I want to start looking back because now we're going to get a retelling of the story. Look at verse 13. When some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, just stop here. This is what's happening. Festus is the new guy in town, and so for political purposes, the king who has limited jurisdiction in the area wants to go and be on good terms with the other guy who's got a lot of authority in the area, and so they're going to have a little political shake hands, good to see you, nice to meet you, I want to get to know you. That's what's going on here. And while they're spending some time together, verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. That parallels verse 2 of the chapter. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met with the accuser face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. That parallels verses 4 and 5. Verse 17, so when they came together here, I made no delay, but the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought, paralleling verse 6. Verse 18, when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, 
They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and there be, uh, and tried, and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Now, again, you've got these parallels. You can lay these two sections of Scripture next to each other and start comparing the details. And when you do that, an interesting thing appears. Number one is verse 20. Let me read it one more time. Being, this is what he said. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions about the accusations against Paul, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. So he says his reason for wanting to take Paul to Jerusalem was to get more clarity about the Jewish disputes about the law. That's what he said his reason was. But the Holy Spirit already told us his real reason in verse 9. Here's his real reason. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem? Okay, this is really helpful. So take the inspired narrator, Holy Spirit, his real motive was to do a favor. What he said was the motive was to try to have a more fair hearing. Okay, that's not what he was doing. He was trying to do this. By the way, if he, if he really wanted to have a fair hearing, he would let Paul go because there are no eyewitnesses to accuse him of anything. Paul has been able to defend himself. He should let him go. If I hold your spot here, flip backwards to chapter 18 real quick. Look at chapter 18. You may remember this. There was a Roman leader named Gallio in Corinth. And although Gallio clearly is not a righteous man, biblically speaking, he at least knows what to do with Paul. Look, look at uh, verse 12 of Acts 18. So Paul is again accused by uh, Jewish leaders and brought before a Roman leader, Gallio, in Corinth. Acts 18, 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So it sounds familiar. Saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to law. Sounds like the same thing. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove him from the tribunal. And then, of course, they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to this. So, you see, Gallio's not a truly righteous man. He doesn't care about a man being beaten in front of him. He doesn't care. But does he at least know what to do with Paul? Yes, when accusations come against Paul of a Jewish religious theological matter, the Roman leader should say, this has nothing to do with Roman law. You go debate it on your own. See you later. I'm not here to try you. That's what both Felix should have said about Paul two years ago and let him go. But in the providence of God, he did not. And this is what Festus should say right now. I got, there's no case against you, Paul. There's no eyewitnesses. There's nothing about a theological debate about a guy you say died and came back to life. And I don't care to talk about this Jesus guy. You're free. Get out of here. But that doesn't happen. Why? Because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Okay? The third time the word favor has been mentioned in today's passage. So let's talk for a minute uh, about this. Hold your spot here. And turn with me again, this time to the right, to the book of James, right after Hebrews. Go to James chapter 2 just for a moment. We saw last week 
that as Felix came to, brought Paul to talk to him for two years over and over, did he want to hear the gospel? No, he didn't care about the gospel. What was he all about? He, he was thinking Paul might give him a bribe, give him enough money because he gave an offering to the Jews, and so maybe he's got some money. And if he gives me the right amount of money, I'll let him out of here. I'll, I'll let him go. Well, this idea of showing a favor is not that far from bribery, right? This, the, the idea is I'll do for you, you do for me, this kind of a thing. You, you might think, well, I'm not anywhere close to being, uh, I've never taken a bribe, you may think. I'm not, that's not even a temptation for me is to take money from someone to do something I shouldn't do. Okay, well, let me, let me make a more, more common application of this principle. Because behind showing favor is the idea of favoritism, which is something that every one of us struggles with in different ways, or partiality. And so, let's look briefly at this passage, first few verses of James 2. James says to the believers, my brothers, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Now, this is something we can all relate to. We all have relationships, people in our life, and it may not be rich and poor. That might not be the divide for you at all. But we all have people in our life who can do something for us, right? There are people in our life who can help us out, whether it's at, our, at work, they can help us get a promotion. These are people who on the social ladder can help us somehow climb up, make us look better, improve our finances, improve our jobs. People who have connections who can do stuff for us. And then we have people who cannot do anything for us. In fact, it's just the opposite. There are people that the more time we spend around them, the more we have to pour our resources and emotions and energy into this person who, who might have real needs and really need to know things and be helped and counseled. That person could be exhausting because you're pouring out. But this other person seems to have worldly things that they can benefit you and give to you. And James says every single human being is going to be tempted to show more attention and kindness to this group over here and to be more neglectful of this group over here, right? When, when the phone rings and you see, oh, it's, one of the, it's a person who's going to be more on this side, I don't want to answer the phone. But when it's a person over here, I, I want to answer the phone. You, th these are the kinds of things deep in our heart that are dark and true of us. And so how in the world do we combat this? We may not be taking bribes, but this is a much more common version of that. Uh, what, what do we, how do we fight that? Two things. Number one, verse one. One more time. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That phrase, the Lord of glory, by the way, he's calling his brother that. I mean, what would it take? James had to have met the resurrected Jesus. Who else is going to call their brother the Lord of glory, okay? So clearly James met the risen Jesus as 1 Corinthians 15 says he did, and he changed his whole mind about Jesus. So he's calling his older brother Lord of glory. But why in the world use that phrase here? It's a very rare phrase. The, the phrase Lord of glory is only used a couple of times in the whole New Testament. I only know of maybe two or a few places. But one of the only times is right here. You know why? James says the reason why we lean toward the people we have over here who can do something for us whether it's the rich or the connected or the this or the that, is because we're trying to get worldly glory from those people. And we're actually using those people to benefit ourselves selfishly because they can give us some of the glory. And James says, listen, believer, Christian, 
Do you understand who your Lord is? Do you understand the God in whom you have daily fellowship? Do you understand the Jesus to whom you can pray in His name to the Father? Do you know who that Jesus is? He is the Lord of glory. If you're looking for glory, if you're looking for someone who can benefit you, how about looking at the Lord Jesus Christ who can, as Scott just told us so wonderfully, can forgive all of our sins, can help us to know the one true God, can welcome us into fellowship with the Trinity. This is the Lord of glory. All the glory you could ever want is yours in Jesus. You have it already. So don't be acting unjustly or sinfully in order to try to use someone to get something that you truly have in its true form already in Christ. You're like a person who has got all kinds of money in his wallet but forgets about it and is looking around trying to steal money from somewhere else. It's like you've, you've already got all the glory you could ever want, ever need in Christ. He is the all-glorious one. And yet we're looking to the rich to give us the glory of riches? That, that's husks and ashes compared to the glory that we have in Christ. And then here's another argument. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. So, James again flips the table. Remember how Paul said, we, we regard no one according to the flesh in 2 Corinthians 5. We regard no one according to the flesh, although we once did so. In fact, we used to even regard Christ according to the flesh. What that means is we took the worldly glory system and we measured everybody we met by the worldly glory system. How big is their house? How nice is their car? How rich are they? How attractive are they? How connected are they? What can they do for me? We, we, have, this, we have this grid and we, we grade everyone on that, on that grid. That's how we look, how famous, how this and that. We grade people by that. How accomplished are you? That's how we consider people's worth. The people who have more of that are more worthy and people who have less are less worthy. And we make adjustments based on that schedule. And, and here's what James is saying. James is saying, okay, I understand what you mean by trying to rate and evaluate people. Here's how you evaluate people. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And according to the Spirit, the poorest, most physically needy believer is richer than Bill Gates and all the others, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all these billionaires, okay? The, the, the poorest believer who has hardly enough food to make it through the day, that believer is rich in faith and an heir of the kingdom. So, Paul has all this kind of theology in mind, and he knows how we should be treating each other, but the people around him in this passage are not thinking that way. They're thinking, what can you do for me? And I'm willing to sacrifice others and create injustice in the world if I can just get benefit from you. And James says, no, look to Jesus for glory, security, beauty, and also look at people in regards to what Christ has done in them and will do with them in the future. That's how we regard people according to the Spirit. We can turn back to Acts 25. And let's look at this last section here. So, Agrippa wants to appear and see Paul. So, Festus says, tomorrow we'll make it happen. So, this is Acts 25, verse 23. So, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall and the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Uh, then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live, etc. Okay, just, just stop here. Speaking of regarding people according to the flesh, 
If you're doing that, this is the best room in the world to be in because look who's there. You got the king, you got Bernice's sister, you've got the military tribunes, the prominent men of the city, you've got Governor Festus, and you've got all the, uh, this great pomp that they come in. I just have to tell you, the, the word for pomp is where we get the word fantasy in English. And some pastors pointed out that that word is not far from the truth. Uh, what, all their great pomp really was not much more than fantasy as they come in. But they come in with all this great pomp, and we should not be deceived by appearances. If you are standing in the room, the least important person, the person in that room you want nothing to do with, is the guy in the chains standing over here named Paul. And everybody else in that room is the one you kind of want to rub shoulders with, get to know all these other people. All the prominent people of the city are there, and there's this ignominious prisoner named Paul. And I have to just read this for you. It seems like everybody quotes this, some, every pastor quotes this somewhere along the way. The earliest, now this is, we don't know if this is historically accurate. I'll just tell you that straight up. I don't know for sure if this is historically accurate. But the earliest physical description of the Apostle Paul comes, you know, this is over a century after he died. So who knows if this word of mouth is accurate or anything. But this is the earliest physical description we have of Paul. I've heard many people read it. You ready? I'd say at least has a chance of being right. Paul, here's how, here's how he's described. He was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. Some people said it almost looked like he had just gotten off a horse. His legs were bow-legged is what the thing. Wow, okay. And in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting, got the unibrow, he's rocking the unibrow, and a nose that is somewhat crooked. Now, I have no idea if that is accurate or not, but that's the only early physical description we have of Paul. And my guess is it may not be terribly far from the truth. So imagine here's Paul. Like, wow, not a very impressive figure. <laughs> you wonder why? First Corinthians, he said, I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and appearance were contemptible to you. And they're thinking, we understand a little bit more why that may be. So there's Paul, and you have all these incredible leaders in the room with, with all their great pomp. Well, under this, let's go into the surface for a second. None of them would have imagined that 2,000 years later, everyone else would be a footnote in Paul's story and the story of his Christ. Nobody would have imagined that we only know about Agrippa II because of Paul. No one would ever think that his only reason to matter in history is because he's in the Bible. Okay? No, no one would ever in that room have thought that, but they were measuring things according to the flesh. And according to the flesh, they had it completely upside down who mattered in the room and who was significant. Agrippa and Bernice. Now, I'm not going to go into detail because you would all feel sick to your stomach. They're brother and sister, and Josephus tells us that they were almost certainly in an incestuous relationship. Okay, so they were acting as husband and wife, although they were brother and sister. She ended up divorced. Well, she, they weren't married, technically. They, she separated from her brother and married another guy to try to cover it up, is what Josephus tells us. Then she divorced him and went back to her brother and continued her wickedness, is what Josephus says. From the same, he lived at the same time period. So, under the surface of the pomp and circumstance, there is corruption everywhere you turn in this room. And Paul is standing there, and, and, and Festus just says so dismissively, you see this man doesn't even say his name here. Just, you see this man, this nobody, this prisoner? Let's look at verse 25 as we come to the end of the passage. He says, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definitive to write to my Lord about him. That's Caesar. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And I'll just, I'll wrap up with this comment. Paul, in the providence of God, surrounded by corruption, all kinds of mixed motives for why he is here right now, but is God still on the throne? 
Does God still have a providential purpose for Paul? Yeah, Jesus said, some of you will speak before governors and kings, and you know, don't think ahead what you will say. I will give you the words in the moment, that kind of thing. Well, here's Paul standing literally before a governor and a king and many of the great men of the time as far as the world is concerned. And what's Paul going to do? Next week we will talk about this, but Paul is going to unleash the gospel. He is going to talk about his conversion, about Jesus risen from the dead. He is going to try to urge the conversion of the king he is standing before. He's going to try to urge him to be converted to Christ. So here's Paul in a terrible situation as far as we would think. And yet what does Paul go? Paul goes, this is amazing. I get to stand before some of the most powerful people as far as the world thinks, and I get to present Jesus to them with no filter on my mouth. I get permission to speak freely, and he just lets them have it with the gospel, and uh, he trusts the Lord with the results of that. And we also should do similarly in our lives. I'm going to wrap up there. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, as we observe Paul up close and personal in these chapters and we get to just slow down in the narrative and see him as he carries himself through so many challenging circumstances, I pray that we would obey the command to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. He was not a perfect man, but he gives us so much to exemplify and uh, to, to imitate. And I pray, Lord, as we see Paul handle himself in these difficult settings that we would find inspiration, encouragement, that we would discern wisdom, that we can even be discipled in a sense by Paul's example from this great distance in time. And Lord, help us, no matter what our circumstances are, and doubtless they're not going to be as dramatic as what Paul is experiencing here, I pray we could still learn to apply to our lives a trust in your providence, that we could be innocent insofar as we haven't broken uh, some truly uh, moral law, that we would also be trusting in you in such a way that even when people with mixed motives and bad motives have control over our lives, that we would say, along with Jesus, that you have no authority truly except what has been given by our Father in heaven and that we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.